Have you ever had one of those conversations with another individual when regardless of all the objective evidence that you present, they simply refuse to change their position? I mean, it doesn't matter how much evidence you have that contradicts what they believe, they just will simply refuse to change their position. Maybe some of you have seen where, you know, you have an employee evaluation or whatever, and you sit down with an employee and you begin to go through, uh, you know what, uh, well, so how, how do you think you're doing? Oh, I'm a great employee. Oh, great, great, great. And uh, say, well, you know, what, the thing we're struggling with is, is that, you know, 50% of the time you miss work because you're either sick or something's going on. And even when you are here, you're not very productive. And we've got this stack of complaints over here about your work performance. And uh, let me, I mean, but, 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 but I'm still a good employee. Yeah, maybe for our competitors you are, but you're not a very good one for us now. It's like, what in the world are you thinking? And you can sit down with all the evidence. I mean, we see it all the time in athletics, where you sit down with a person, you bench him, and you say, hey, you know, but I'm a good player, and I should be out on the field. Well, but you're 0 for 47, and you've struck out the last 29 times in a row. Maybe you just need a rest. Well, it's not right. I'm better than the guy that's out there. I'm a good, I'm a good, you know, I'm a good athlete. I'm a good athlete. Why are you benching me? You gave up 16 touchdowns in three games. Yeah, but I'm still good. Well, you keep believing that, you know, because maybe you'll get back in someday, but until then, you're sitting down. You know, we go through these things where the evidence is there, you know, and, and I struggled with that because in, in my heart, you know, we want to believe certain things, but sometimes we need an objective standard and evidence that indicates that maybe what we believe in our heart and our emotions aren't really adding up to the reality of the situation. And when we're spending our time with the Rams, you know, I, I, every year it's the same thing. I tell, oh man, this is the season, man. The Rams are going to have a good team. Oh man, we got a good team. And finally, one day, one day a guy came up to me, and I said this for like five years in a row during the 90s, right? And a guy came up to me and said, hey, you know, look, look at that I just read in the paper today. You realize the Rams, there are 27 other teams in the NFL with better records than the Rams in the 90s, and only Tampa Bay has a record that's worse, and that's only one game? And I'd be like, but, 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 but they're still a good team. And they'd be like, and you're an idiot. You must not have been a math major because look at this, man. It is just brutal. You know, when you have those conversations with your children, you ask them, hey, how you doing in a certain subject? Oh, I'm doing great. I am doing great. And then you get the report card. Now, what's a D mean to you? <laughs> See, a D means to me, duh. <laughs> duh. But I'm doing great. Well, a D isn't great. A D stands for duh. You know, and you go through this. Hey, how's it going on your diet? Oh, man, I'm doing great. Well, why are you gaining five pounds? Must not be doing as good as you thought. And you go through all these things, and you begin to realize that, you know what? Sometimes the evidence is there. We just don't want to change our position because we're emotionally attached to whatever position that is. You know, we may think we're fine, but when we measure ourselves against something other than our own standard of measurement, and we measure ourselves against an objective standard, all of a sudden we may fall short give you a couple stories. One, there's a man who believes he's dead. He is absolutely convinced that he's dead. And this delusion is driving his family crazy to the point where they finally break down and they say, listen, we have a, we've set up an appointment for you to see a psychiatrist. So they pay for him to go to see a psychiatrist. The guy goes into the psychiatrist's office and he says, yeah, what's the problem? He says, there's no problem. I'm dead. He goes, you're dead. He goes, yes, I'm dead. He goes, when did you die? I died two years ago. Okay. And he tried to, through several sessions, 
convinced this man that he wasn't dead. And out of frustration, he went and he got all these medical books and he sat down and, it, and for hours he, he labored to show this man who thought he was dead that dead men don't bleed. And so he went through all his medical records and books and he showed him that dead men don't bleed. And after several sessions, the, the man was finally convinced of the reality that dead men don't bleed. So he said, let me ask you a question. Do dead men bleed? He said, no, dead men don't bleed. He goes, great, okay, let me see your hand. And the guy holds out his hands, and he pulls a pin out from behind his desk. The psychiatrist sticks him in the finger with the pin, and all of a sudden, the guy's bleeding. And the psychiatrist looks at him and says, so what does that tell you? And the guy went, oh my gosh, dead men do bleed. <laughs> Some of us are like that. I like the true story. A true story, a teacher friend of mine tells me about two students that he had. Two students that he had, one was named Johnny, another named Jimmy. True story. Teacher calls Johnny's mom and dad and says to Johnny's mom, listen, we had a problem, we need to have a, a little consultation, can you come down to the school? And, and Johnny's mom said, why? She said, he, said, he said, well, because I think we got a problem. So well, what's the problem? Tell me before I get there. So well, I believe that Johnny, your son, has been cheating. And uh, we just need to discuss it. And she went off. We've taught my son not to cheat. He is not a cheater. There must be some mistake. There's no way that Johnny's a cheater. There's just no way that can be possible. And the teacher said, please just come down and let's take a look at it and let's discuss it. So she goes down to meet this teacher. And the teacher says, look, I think we got a problem with your son. He's been cheating on tests. And she said, there's no way. She says, do you have any proof? He goes, well, I, you know, I think that we do. Let me show you. So he grabs a couple of tests and she said, he said, you know, your son Johnny and Jimmy have been best friends. And she said, oh, yeah, for years. I said, well, they sit together, the teacher said. And she said, oh, okay, so? And he said, well, listen. And, and, she, and he looks at this piece of paper, hands it to the mom and says, here's a geography test that we just took. And she said, okay. She said, this is Johnny's paper, your son. Number one, the, the answer was Nebraska. Your, Jimmy, your Johnny writes Nebraska and, and Jimmy wrote Nebraska. She said, well, what was the right answer? He said, well, the right answer was Nebraska. I said, well, what's that have to do? That doesn't mean anything. He said, okay, look, here, here, you, you know, Jimmy, his buddy writes down Ohio on number two, and your Johnny writes down Ohio. Well, was that the right answer? Well, yeah, it was. Well, I don't understand what you're trying to say. Well, okay, look, let's skip down to number 10. Jimmy, Johnny's friend, writes down, I don't know. And look at your Johnny writes. Me neither. So, so I, I, think, I think we got a problem here. Say, so, well, I guess we do. You know, but some of us, you know, some of us think we're okay even when the evidence overwhelmingly points to the fact that we're not. And uh, such a man was a man whose name was Saul. At this particular time, he was known as Saul of Tarsus was the place where he lived. And he thought because of all of his achievements, and as he held those achievements up to God, his own standard, he thought that he was doing a pretty good job. He thought he was doing a great job, that he was a pretty good guy, that he must be pleasing to God as he looked at all the things that he achieved in his life, accomplished in his life, but he would soon learn that, you know what, there's a whole bunch of joy to be had in releasing your past. He learned there's a whole bunch of joy that can be had if we would just learn to release our past. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 as we continue in our study of this letter that he writes to this church at Philippi to a group of people who needed to be encouraged and I believe that they had a problem with a lack of joy in their life. 
Because over and over again, the Apostle Paul reminds them of the fact that they need to rejoice, they need to choose joy, they need to have joy, they need to be joyful, and he gives them several opportunities or, or several ways in which this can be accomplished. And we read this in chapter 3, verse 1. He writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord always. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. It says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is found in the law, I was found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies ahead, I reach forward as I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In this particular section here, we saw last time we got together that the Apostle Paul warned that there would be people who would come into his life that would try to rob him of the joy of his relationship with God. He said they would come to him and they would withhold the truth they wouldn't tell him what they needed to hear, that they would withhold it and try to tell him what they thought that he, they wanted to hear. They would, they would have their ears tickled by people who wanted to comfort them and comfort them in a way that they thought they need comforting instead of just telling them the truth. That they would add to what God says as a way to become right with God by adding things such as works and circumcision. And it was like, hey, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, but you need to be circumcised. You know, you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to do this, that, and the other thing. And so he warned them that there would be those who would mutilate God's gift of grace to us by adding a whole bunch of long list of things that needed to be done. And as he goes through this, he says, you know what? Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, what he's saying is, you know, listen to me. There are a whole bunch of people out there saying, hey, you know what, you're telling people not to have confidence in their achievements because you haven't achieved anything. And he's saying, hey, you know what, let me set the record straight here for, this, for a second. If there's anyone who could have confidence in the flesh, and that phrase means basically this, if there's anyone who could boast about his achievements, hey, don't forget who you're talking to. And so what he was trying to do is set them straight. It'd be like, I remember the first time we started getting involved with the Rams and stuff, and, you know, we'd have guys over and we'd sit down and talk about, you know, did, did I play sports, and yeah, I did, and this and the other thing. And, you know, and you start feeling pretty good about your career, high school career or whatever. You know, and, and it'd be almost ridiculous after a while because you'd be like, here, let me bring out my scrapbook and let me show you some pictures. And, 
You know, it's like, oh, man, look at that. Oh, you're a real wild man, weren't you? Oh, yeah, oh, hey, oh, hey, man, I was something else. You know, and you bring out this little thing. And then all of a sudden you begin to realize, like, like do you know who you're talking to? It's like, oh, boy, you had a great high school career. Oh, yeah, I was All-American in college, Division I. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was drafted first round in the pros. Oh, yeah, I've been in the league 15 years, eight Pro Bowls. Oh, yeah, you're going to be going to the Hall of Fame, aren't you? Uh-huh. So uh, what kind of high school achievements did you achieve? <laughs> you know, I was okay. You know, the second, third year after that, I was like, I never even brought it up. <laughs> Did you ever play sports? Ah, you know, I just kind of dabbled in a little bit. I was okay. They're like, I learned quick. So what the Apostle Paul is trying to do, he's saying, hey, you know what? If you want to boast about your achievements, folks, don't forget who you're talking to. And then he goes on and says, man, you know what? If anyone has a mind to be confident in their flesh, I far more. And he goes through and he begins to explain, oh, you know what? Hey, I, I just, I, I blew y'all away. There's any of you out there who are criticizing me that can even come close to doing the things that I did. So he goes through and he says, you know what? Hey, don't forget who you're talking to. So he goes down and he starts listing his achievements. Six-time Pro Bowl on a way to Hall of Fame, this, that, and the other thing, drafted first round, $5 million signing bonus, goes through this stuff. And these people are sitting there listening and begin to realize, you know what? They don't have a whole lot to say compared to what he is and who he is. So he goes on and he writes this. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness was found in the law. I was blameless. He gives a quick list of things that he was by birth and also by choice. And I like the way one New Testament scholar put it all together. He says this, if there was ever a Jew who was steeped in Judaism, that Jew was Paul. He said, let us look again at these claims of his. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That is to say that he bore in the body the badge and the mark that he was one of God's chosen people marked out for God's possession. He was circumcised on the eighth day that we would all understand in Judaism that was a very important thing. That meant he had godly heritage, a godly background. He had godly parents that took him to the temple and instead of dedicating him, what they would do is take him to the temple and circumcise this child. So he had a godly heritage that were people that were sensitive to the things of God. He's saying, hey, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Some of the Judaizers, if they were Ishmaelites, weren't circumcised until after they were 13. So they were sitting there listening to him going, oh, man, guy was circumcised on the eighth day. He had godly heritage. He goes on and it says that also he was of the race of Israel. That is to say he was a member of the nation who stood in the covenant relationship with God and his history could be traced directly back. His genealogy could be traced directly back to Abraham. He was saying that, hey, you know what? I was a Hebrew of Hebrew. I was a nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying from Benjamin came the first king of Israel, the King Saul. And his heritage was such that he could trace his lineage back to this time where he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the only tribes, was the only tribe who was actually, Benjamin was actually the only son of Jacob that was born in the promised land. And he has a special relationship there. And in fact, when Israel would go into battle, Benjamin would lead the way. The tribe of Benjamin or the people of Benjamin would lead the way and the people would charge after him. After thee, O Benjamin, do we come. And they would charge after the nation or the, the, uh, the tribe of Benjamin. So he's saying, hey, you know what? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness in the law, I'm found blameless. It was kind of a crescendo. He was saying, hey, you think that you're hot stuff? Let me remind you who you're talking to here. 
How do you add up? How do you stack up compared to what I just laid out? And I'm not bragging or boasting. I'm just making a point so that you understand how foolish it is what you're trying to tell people what they need to be in order to be right with God. I'm going to ask you a question as we go through this, and that is, why is this so important? Why is this background so important? It's important for one simple reason. If human achievement and accomplishment and the family you were born into is so important as to make you right with God, if that's what it's all about, then man, you know what? Then we need to look at our past history, don't we? But the point that he's making is this. It doesn't matter what your human achievement is. It doesn't matter what family you were born into. The reality of it all is this. That doesn't make you right with God. It never has and it never will. And he lays it out plain and simple so that they'd all understand. He revealed, basically realized in spite of this impressive record that he had, that to find joy in his life, he was going to have to release his past. That's a difficult thing for some of us to do, as we will see. And basically he shares with us three ways to do it. You say, man, how do, what do you mean, release your past? How do you, how do, you do that? Uh, it starts by recognizing, number one, this. That everything that you've achieved in life, is counted as rubbish. You see what he says? Look at verse 7. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But, indicating a strong contrast, but whatever things were my profit, whatever things were I thought were gained to me, I count them all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Basically, he's saying it was shattered. Everything that he thought was shattered in a moment in time, every theory that he had about what he had to do to be right with God was shattered in a moment in time. He said, that's it, none of this. All the achievements and all the success and all the accomplishments and all the to-do things that he did were shattered in a moment in time. Dead men don't bleed. Your kid is a cheater. Shattered When the objective evidence was presented to him, it was shattered in a moment in time. He was going through this long crest of all these accomplishments. And you know what happened? In Acts chapter 9, we read about the fact that the, the, the Saul of Tarsus, he hated Jesus. He hated the people who followed Jesus. He had everything that had to do with Jesus. And what he did was, as he said, I was a persecutor of the church. I went after him wholeheartedly says when Stephen, the first person in the Christian faith ever to die for what he believed, was martyred. It said that there was a young man who was standing in attendance. His name was Saul. And he heartily approved of the stoning death of Stephen. In fact, he volunteered to watch everybody's cloaks or their, their, their coats so they could get a good shot at him with a stone. And so that you understand what takes place, too, stoning took place like this. They would take a person, they would tie his hands behind his back, they would drop him into a hole of some sort, maybe 8 to 10 feet lower than where the crowd would stand. He would be laying there with his face up, looking straight into the crowd, and the crowd would then take off their coats because they couldn't really pick up a good-sized stone, and Saul was standing over in a corner and said, I'll watch those, this is going to be fun. And they would go over and they would take a rock, and they would take the biggest rock that they could find and they would lift it up over their head and as that person was laying in the pit looking straight at them, they would drop a rock right on their body. If they could hit their head, they hit their head, but most of the times they hit every other part of the body first so they didn't die too soon. And they would drop stones on them. And it says that Saul of Tarsus was in hearty approval of the stoning of Stephen. 
And in fact, he went to, to the religious leaders and said, give me some papers of authority that I can now go to the city of Damascus and I will gather up and round up every person who says they believe in Jesus Christ and I'm going to drag them back here in chains and we'll do the same thing to every one of them. And on his way to Damascus, he came across an encounter with the living God. And he was knocked off his horse and he was blinded by the light. And as he was laying in the ground, Saul said, who is that? Who is that, Lord? And he said, this is Jesus. This is Jesus who you are persecuting. And it's hard for you, isn't it, to kick against the goad? He said, what? Kick against the goad. A goad was a prod that was used to get animals to go in a certain direction. And so a shepherd or whatever would use this, this goad and it would prod the animal to go the direction that it wanted to go. So it was a form of leading that animal the direction that it needed to go. And Jesus was saying to him, hey, it's a little hard for you, isn't it, to kick against God's leading, isn't it, Saul of Tarsus? And in that moment of time, Saul recognized when he saw true righteousness, he recognized his righteousness was as a filthy rag. When he saw true righteousness and he saw the living God and he saw Jesus Christ alive as they said he was, that he was risen from the dead. And he recognized that he had come face to face with Jesus Christ after supposedly he had been murdered. He realized at that moment in time that he had come across the living God. And you know what he did when he was laying on the ground? He said, oh, what am I supposed to do? What should I do now? What should I do now? In that moment of time, he gave, up his, he gave up control of his life. Everything that he believed was true was shattered in a moment in time when he came across true righteousness that comes only from God. This inner righteousness that he had of living according to this man-made set of rules and regulations were shattered the moment that he saw true righteousness. When he saw that righteousness comes only from God, when he saw Jesus Christ face to face, he said, what am I supposed to do? You know, I can't help but smile and think about the fact that when Paul went and started this church in Philippi, and as he was in prison for telling people about Jesus, and it said that he went from that moment to going and telling everybody about Jesus. Hey, I was wrong. Jesus isn't dead. These people aren't nuts. I just saw him face to face. He's changed my life. If any man's in Christ, I'm a new creature. All things passed away. I got to tell you about Jesus. He's alive. And it said the Jews were going crazy because they couldn't believe that this guy, this Hall of Famer in the Jewish community, was now running around telling people about Jesus. They thought he flipped his wagon. He didn't flip his wagon. God flipped it for him. And he was telling people about Jesus. And it said that he was, they, were, they were confused. They were going through, and he was explaining to them from their laws how Jesus was the promised one of God. And they were going nuts. And I can't help but smile when I think about the fact then he got arrested, thrown in prison in a place called Philippi, which he's now writing to these people. And you know what happened when he was in prison? God opened all the gates of the prison. The prison guard thought that they all escaped. They were in there singing. Paul and Silas were singing. The guard came rushing in and saw that they hadn't left. And you know what he said? The same thing that Paul said. What shall I do to be saved? <laughs> what do I got to do? And what did he tell him? He said this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's it. It says, but all these achievements and everything that I worked hard for in a moment in time has just been shattered. 
And he realized that all those things are counted as rubbish. Listen to me, folks. We need to release our past. And the reason I say that is some of us don't want to release it because we have confidence in human ability, effort, and achievement. Some of us don't want to hear this because, you know what, we've been busy all of our lives trying to please God through our own efforts. You know, I was going through a list of things that I could think of. I mean, we've, some of, we've been baptized, we've been confirmed, we've received sacraments, we've had religious training. Some have become professional religious people who are priests and ministers and rabbis and deacons, and they've given up everything in their life so that they could be a religious person somehow pleasing to God. We've gone to church, we've washed feet, we've traced our genealogy, we've read the Bible and other books, all trying to teach us how to be closer to God. We've prayed, we've, uh, we've, uh, we've, we didn't eat meat on Fridays, you know, as like we gave up drinking, smoking, and candy for Lent. You know, we fasted, we prayed for the dead, we lit candles, we bought statues, we set up altars in our backyards, we prayed the saints. You know, we, we've, we've uh, you know, you go through all these, we, we've ridden on bicycles with white shirts and long ties and you know, we've gone knocking door to door. I mean, you know, we've done all this stuff. We've given away money. We've volunteered our time. And like Saul of Tarsus, when we're finally, finally confronted by true righteousness, when we're confronted by the claims of Jesus Christ, we got a tough decision to make. We're either going to hang on to all this because we don't want to think we wasted all our time. I mean, the biggest thing I struggle with is, you mean all those years that I didn't eat meat, I ate tuna fish spaghetti sauce on Fridays? You know how disgusting tuna fish spaghetti sauce is? We only had one person in our family even knew how to make it to where you didn't throw up after you ate it. But it was Friday and we had to eat fish and tuna, oh, tuna fish spaghetti sauce. And you know how hard it is when you've done all these things all of your life to finally be confronted by the truth of Jesus Christ and all you've got to do is, what do I got to do to be saved or right with God? Just believe in Jesus. What? That's not enough. That is not enough. You gonna tell me someone that never ate tuna fish spaghetti sauce? If they believe in Jesus, they're going to heaven. And I ate tuna fish spaghetti sauce. I don't think it's enough. See, what happens is the mutilators of God's grace would come along and say this: I ate stinking tuna fish spaghetti sauce, and you're not getting off this easy. Yeah, believing in Jesus, great, but you're eating stinking tuna fish spaghetti sauce. You believe in Jesus, great, but you're getting circumcised. You, you, you believe in Jesus, great, but there's, I mean, well, I don't know what your background is, but it's like, you know what I'm talking about. And it's frustrating to realize that, man, you know what? All this stuff that I did was a waste of time. Listen to me. He says this, but whatever thing was profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost compared to surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, who I've suffered the sake of, I lost all things, that I consider them rubbish. I like the King James. You know what the King James says? I consider it dung. Dung, for those of you who don't understand. Doo-doo. <laughs> I consider it doo-doo. Now, I'm out for a run the other day, and I'm thinking about this, you know. And I'm laughing because I'm thinking about how stupid I was when I meet with professional athletes and we used to talk about my career. And uh, then I'm out for a run and I'm thinking, you know, a place where I run, there's, like, there's, a, there's a trail there that people walk their dogs and sometimes a horse or two. And so you got to be real careful. You know, sometimes you get in a zone when you're running and, and you know, you get shaken out of that zone real quick when you go, ooh, that was a soft step. Um, but, but, but you got to watch where you're running. 
And so I'm running one day, and I'm thinking about all this, and, and, and I start to laugh. Because I see this big old, it's not a dropping, because if it was a dropping, it'd be from a bird. <laughs> so I'm trying to think what this could be. It's from a horse. It's a dump. It's a big old dump truck from a horse. A horse just stopped, backed up the truck, and started dumping. And so I see this thing, and it was like the low hurdles. You know, I was trying to get over it. And, and, and I started to laugh, because as I ran, ran by it, this is what I thought. This is kind of like what, what God was saying to me. You, Chuck, did you see that thing you almost stepped in? That's human effort. That's what I think of human effort. That's what I think of all the long list of things that I just read. God saying all this long list of things. He goes, that's what I think of that. It's human waste. It's garbage. And some of us got all of our hope and trust on human waste. I don't know, but I've never seen one that you'd be proud of putting in a trophy case. <laughs> Lord, let me in heaven. Look at this big pile I got to bring you. <laughs> and it's like God saying, I'm sorry, there'll be none of that in heaven. Thank you very much. It's human waste. I mean, do you see what he's saying here? When, what Paul's saying was, when I met Jesus and, sur and saw the surpassing greatness of knowing him, all of the things that I thought were important in life became as a big pile of horse waste, and I threw them all away. I threw it all away. I like one man said, he says, you know what, when I found Jesus, I lost my religion. I like that. See, because what religion is, is man's effort always to reach up somehow and please God. And what, God, and what Jesus said to Paul, you know, as Saul at that time, he said, it's really hard for you, isn't it, to kick against the goad? It's really hard for you, isn't it, to kick against the leading of God? It's really hard for you, isn't it, to kick against the conviction of the Holy Spirit? It's really hard for you, isn't it, to kick against the direction of God or God's will, isn't it? And all these years that I struggled with all these things that I did, I knew in my heart that I wasn't right with God. And when I was confronted by the simple truth that, you know what, have you ever trusted and believed in Jesus Christ? And I'd say, well, what do you mean by that? There was a leading, a direction of God saying, hey, all of those things, all of the things that you did were pointing you to the fact that you can't do it on your own and that you need a Savior. And when you're confronted with the truth, you have to wrestle with, am I, am I willing to release all these things in my past? Or am I going to hang on to him and hope that somehow human effort is going to do the trick? Saul said, as he became the Apostle Paul, it's all trash, folks. It's all junk. It's all rubbish. It's all little teeny high school trophies next to a guy who's going into the NFL Hall of Fame. Just get rid of it and throw it away and trust in him. The second thing that he said, as we look at this, how, how do you do it, is our assurance, once we release our past, our assurance is centered in Christ alone. And that we would be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, he says, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see what he's saying? Hey, my righteousness isn't based on anything that I did. My righteousness now is based on who Jesus Christ is. My righteousness comes from God and from God alone. See, the most wonderful thing is to stand here and say to you that I know that I'm righteous before God, not because of this long list of accomplishments that I have in my background, 
because some of you could come up and challenge it or say that you've even done more things. No, the confidence that I have is I am righteous before God because God declared me righteous when I believed, simply believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. And the righteousness that I have comes from Him. When I believed in Him, I received Him, I became a child of God to those who believe in His name. Why? Because of God's grace. We're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. So there'll never be anybody in heaven with this long list of accomplishments saying, I'm here because let me show you my trophy case. Sir, I'm here because let me show you my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God. And that's the only reason we'll be there. He's saying that once you release your past, not only do you consider everything that you thought was important in life to be not important and you throw it all in the trash, but you realize that your assurance is now centered in Christ alone. I, hey, listen to me. You and I are going to get into heaven for one reason and one reason alone. And that is, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes into the Father but through me. The only way that you're getting into heaven, that I would get into heaven, is for one reason and one reason alone, and that is because we believed in Jesus Christ. Not we believed in Jesus Christ, plus we did all these things. But because we believed in Jesus Christ. I would hope somewhere along the line, there'd be some credit for eating tuna fish spaghetti sauce. <laughs> but I am sadly disappointed to realize that that's a big zero. But that's okay. Because I'd rather be there because of Jesus than have to go through a long list of things and hope that somehow I get there. I'd rather have confidence knowing I'm going there than wondering if I am by doing a whole bunch of stuff that God says is trash. But it's your choice. Number three, if we realize that all our achievements are rubbish and that our salvation is centered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, then we move on from there, realizing that our ambitions are controlled by Christ. He says, you know what? All right, now! He's saying, now, hey, all that stuff that I did in my past wasn't a waste because what it did was it pointed me to the fact that I couldn't do this on my own. See, I know a lot of people, and here's the frustration, they say, but I've gone to church for 45 years and I never missed whatever. I've done all the things that my church says I'm supposed to do. I haven't missed anything. And now here you are coming to me saying that, you know what, that's not what's important. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And there's two ways to look at it. One is, you know what, oh man, I could really be upset about the fact that these people gave me this long list of things to do that didn't make any difference. Or I can say, I'm not going to let that go because I'm going to hang on to that. Because this sounds too easy. And what I like to do is say this. Listen, you know what? My background, your background, when you're finally confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, hey, if it did what it was supposed to do, it would lead you to that point of realizing that religion isn't going to get it done. There's always something missing. So I realized very plain and simple was this. You know what? I never knew where I stood before God. But you know what? It made me sensitive to things of God. It made me sensitive to the plan of God. It made me sensitive to the fact that I realized, you know what? The law or the commandments are a tutor, a teacher that leads us to a Savior because we can't do it ourselves. The law, the commandments make us realize I can't get 100% on every test. I can't get a hit every time I'm up at bat. I can't shut down you know, a good wide receiver every time he's going out for a route. I can't do it. I'm not perfect. But what it did was make me realize that, you know what? I need someone who is. And Jesus is. He's perfect. And now my ambition in life from that day forward is controlled by Christ. I want to know Christ. And I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. He's saying, you know what? I live for Jesus now. How about you? 
Do you? Is that, that overwhelming passion of your life? Is the overwhelming passion of your life to know Him? To get to know Him more intimately and closely? The one who gave His life for you? Who died for you? Who rose from the dead for you? Who because of Him we have forgiveness with, with, with God and we have forgiveness from sin? Is it your desire, overwhelming passion to know Him and the power of His resurrection so that now I can live a life that's pleasing to God? Is that your overwhelming passion? It's not many of ours, is it? And I think we need to understand that. That ha He has to be our passion in our life because when we seek first the kingdom of God, everything else falls into place. Paul said, that was my passion in life, to know Him and the power of His resurrection and how that affects my day-to-day -day living, my relationships with one another, how I conduct myself in business, how I speak to other people with my words and my mouth and my mannerisms and my actions. I want to know Him. What would Jesus do in a situation like this? How would He talk to that person? What would He say? Would He lie? Would He cheat? Would He steal? No, I want to know Him more. And the power of His resurrection so I can live a life that's pleasing to God. Not that living a life pleasing to God is what makes us right with God because what makes us right is putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But after that point, then we move on and we live from there in a life that's pleasing to God and a manner that's pleasing to God. But he says this, he goes, you know what though? He not that I've already obtained all this or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ, I take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. His purpose for living. And let me close and just share with you some application. Because you sit there and you go, man, you know what? what, what how does this even apply to my life? How does it apply to my life? Well, the first way it applies very simply is this. Hey, you know what? Some of you are hanging on to all your achievements thinking somehow that's going to get you into heaven. That's not going to work. So the first step is this. Count all those achievements as rubbish. If anything, count them as the fact that they are the ones that led you to the fact that you realize your achievements aren't going to get it done. And then put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, you throw all that trash in, in the garbage and you let the garbage man haul it away and you never look at it again and you never turn back to it again. It's over. Forgetting what lies behind. Just get rid of it. And then your assurance is centered in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. His spirit, spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. A hundred percent sold on the fact that my relationship with God is founded upon the work and the person of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And the third thing is this. Now all my ambitions for living are controlled by Christ. I want to live a life that's pleasing to God. And as we go through it, let me give you Paul, and I'll call it a healthy philosophy of life, a joyful philosophy of life. Number one, it's this. He's talking about progress, not perfection. You say, what do you mean by that? You want to have a joyful philosophy of life? God's saying, hey, be content with progress and not perfection. The moment that you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're made perfect in the eyes of God. God sees you as perfect, and that's how we're getting into heaven. He says, but you know what? While we're here living on this earth, we need to recognize the fact that we need to be making some progress. We need to be moving forward. The Christian life for many of us is three steps forward, two steps backwards. And I realize that and I understand that. But what I'm trying to get across to you is that we need to be progressing. We need to be moving forward. 
We shouldn't be having the same difficulties and problems that we did when we first came to know the Lord. We should be beyond a lot of these things. Some of us have a problem with how we talk in our mouth. Some of us have a problem with our temper and our attitude. Some of us had a problem where we used to lie, cheat, and steal from other people. You know what he's saying is we need to be moving forward in those areas, putting those things behind us, realizing because of the power of his resurrection, I no longer have to lie to cover my bases. I no longer have to cheat. I no longer have to steal. I no longer have a, a lack of control over the appetites of my life. But I can move forward, and I need to be moving forward. And basically, the bottom line is this. You know what? You can expect perfection, but I would challenge you to accept humanity. The perfectionists in this crowd that are listening to me, it's going to drive you crazy that I just said it. Because you think that it's an excuse for people to continue to live the way that they want to live. And that's not what I said at all. What I'm saying simply is this. You can expect perfection, but you better accept humanity because that's what you're stuck dealing with on a regular basis. And let me just remind you, Mr. or Mrs. Perfectionist, you are not perfect even though you think you are. The people around you are not perfect and you understand that very clearly. We live in an imperfect world with imperfect people who make imperfect decisions. Some of the most miserable, joyless people that I know in this world are Christians who still believe that people are supposed to live perfect lives. Give yourself a break. You can expect perfection, but you better accept humanity because that's all you're going to get. Progress, not perfection. Number two, the past is over, forget about it. The past is over, forget about it. You see what Paul said? Man, you know what? I want to hang on to the past. Because if the past is going to benefit me, I don't want to let go of the past. Some of the most miserable people that I know are people that want to hold on to the past. They're the people who say, but, but I was a four-time pro ball player. Yeah, well, that, you said, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. You were. But I was a CEO of a major corporation. Well, let me just explain to you again. You said you were. But, 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 I was, but I was this, and I was that, and I was all these things. Man, some of the hardest things in life sometimes are to realize that you're not living in the past anymore. It's the present. But we were your biggest customer. Were. You see what happens? And we want to hang on to the past. There's only two things in the past, all those achievements that we think we can be boastful and prideful for. Hey, you know, I knew guys in professional ball. I was like, but, but I was on every billboard in the city of Houston when I played for the Oilers. And let me just explain to you, you were and you don't know Mo. You're here in L.A. Nobody cares about you. Isn't that great? But I was, uh, no matter what you was. The other thing is, some of us think we're disqualified because we made all kind of bad decisions in our life. We have made mistake after mistake. We have hurt people. We have hurt ourselves. But let me tell you something about that too. Paul was standing there holding the cloaks of people that stoned to death one of God's people. And he was in hearty approval of it. Paul, as Saul, drove into the city and rounded people up and chained them and dragged them behind his horse and laughed at them all the way. Cursed at them and spit on them and made fun of them. If there was anyone who could feel disqualified for past mistakes, it certainly would have been him. Some of us have made all kinds of mistakes in our life, and I guess the point is this. You know what? Some of us are holding on to the past because we've had great achievements and accomplishments. Others of us are always looking back to the past because we think we're disqualified from doing anything in the, in the present or in the future. And what I say to both of you is this. Forget it. 
It's over. It's past. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God who is in Christ Jesus. Folks, forget it. If you've sinned, confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from it. If you've had great achievements and accomplishments, count them all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. The past is over. All I can tell you is this. There is no room in the present for the past. Number three, press on. The future holds our hope. Go for the future. You got a fresh slate. 1 John 1, 9 is like an a, like a eraser on a chalkboard. Every time I make a mistake, it's a wonderful truth that God says, Chuck, just confess that sin, and I'm going to erase it from there, and you're never going to even be held accountable to it forever and ever and ever. Amen. It's over. It's done. Now get up and get moving. I got some stuff I want you to do. The future holds our hope. Press on. It doesn't do anybody any good to sit around saying, hey, I got a D in this class, or I'm 0 for 47, or I got burned 16 times, or you know what, or I used to be a great player. Hey, it doesn't do anybody any good to talk about what they used to be like. What they need to do is focus on what are you going to become. I was a terrible husband. I was a terrible father. I was all these things. Hey, you know what, Father's Day, we all know, dads, how many times we've made a mistake. All I'm saying to you is this, where you need to make it right with your children and with your wife and ask for forgiveness and then just let God erase it and start fresh today and move forward. And the last thing is this. The secret is a determined attitude. The secret is a determined attitude, and that's basically is maintain it. Maintain it. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about choosing joy. I'm talking about a joyful attitude. I'm talking about a man who say, knows what he's talking about when he says, you know what, I'm choosing joy. I'm forgetting the past. I'm moving on to the future. I'm talking about a, a progress, not perfection. And I can smile and I can enjoy life because I realize none of us are perfect. And thank, thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who frees us from all of it. Let me close with a poem that kind of summarizes all of it. And it's, it's a wonderful truth that ties everything I was trying to say together, especially on Father's Day. I think it, it really is applicable. But talking about cultivating an attitude of joy. This is what this man writes. He says, I pass a lot of houses on my way home. Some are pretty, some expensive, some inviting, but my heart always skips a beat when I turn down the road and I see my house nestled against the hill. He says, I guess I'm especially proud of the house and the way it looks because I drew the plans myself says it started out large enough for us. I even had a study. But two teenage boys now reside in there. It had a guest room. My girl and nine dolls are now the permanent guests. It had a small room Peg had hoped would be her sewing room. And two boys swinging on the Dutch door have claimed that room for their own. So it really doesn't look right now like I'm much of an architect. But it will get larger again. One by one, they will go away to work, to college, to service, to their own houses. And then there will be room. There'll be a guest room. There'll be a study, a sewing room for just the two of us. But it won't be empty because in every corner of every room, every nick in the coffee table will be crowded with memories. Memories of picnics and parties, of Christmases and bedside vigils, summers, fires, winters, going barefoot, leaving for vacation, Cats, conversation, black eyes, graduations, first dates, ball games, arguments, washing dishes, bicycles, dogs, boat rides, getting home from vacation, meals, rabbits, and a thousand other things that fill the lives of those who would raise five. And Peg and I will sit quietly by the fire and listen to the laughter in the walls.
I like that. Because if there's one thing that I want to encourage dads to do and moms to do is to cultivate an attitude of joy in our homes. When we sit quietly and our children have gone, to be able to listen to the laughter and not the bitterness, to see the smiles and not the anger, to feel the love and the warmth in the walls and not hatred or animosity. And a lot of it has to do with our attitude, doesn't it? It has to do with choosing joy to knowing that God is in control of all things. Our achievements are counted as rubbish. Our salvation is centered in Jesus Christ. And our ambition is to please God in all the things that we do. And I'll guarantee you, if that's your home, then you're going to be able to sit one day and hear the laughter in the walls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day where we could be together and just focus on you. Just thank you for the simple truth of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. That God, you so loved the world that you sent your only begotten Son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish and have everlasting life. God, I just pray for each person that hears these words. That they would lay aside their pride. They would lay aside their past. And they would embrace your love. That they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone and give you all the glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.